Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The blame game continues. China's Ministry of Commerce spokesman saying the following, that China's stance on the talks has been clear. If the US wants to resume talks, they should show sincerity and correct their wrong practices. Only on a basis of equality and mutual respect can talks continue. It's the latest sign that China has no intention of making concessions to the United States to restart talks, which of course collapsed in the last couple of weeks. To discuss, I'm pleased to say that Chris Morangi joins us now, Gabelli Fund's co-chief investment officer. Good morning to you, Chris. Good morning. Glad to be here. So let's just start. Are we digging in for the long haul here? It seems that way. It seems that the market is discounting uh, an extended trade war or a complete repositioning of the relationship with China over the long term. If this is a permanent feature, at least for the next couple of years, What does that mean for how you put money to work? Well, it means that you've got to be probably a little bit more cautious about companies with exposure to China, either indirectly or or directly. Um, And you've got to be a little bit more price disciplined. So um, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about uh, unintended consequences of of what might happen here and and, and how far the the Chinese and the U.S. might push these negotiations. And and that's why we were risk off this morning. Typically, when we are risk off for more than one morning, the risk aversion begins to build. The strategists come out on Wall Street and the value tourists begin to build. They come out of growth and they start saying, now is the time the value is going to work. You're the guy that's always in value. Walk me through why that's true and why it isn't. Yeah, I think it's going to take the market down uh, more than 1% in a a year that's been up 15% to get me excited. But... Um, you know, I think I think the, uh, the the move to value has been after a, obviously a decade long run for growth. It's I think driven more by what's happening with interest rates uh, and, and other elements like that. So um, you know, listen, we're finding value pretty much in every market. Why are we down more? If, if we were blind, if we had no market quotes here, and if we were running this by abacus, if we had the news flow we'd have, it'd be doom and gloom. And yet we're down three, four percent, twenty five thousand. 776 on the close. Why aren't we down more? Yeah, you know, I, I would agree. Um, the market, I think, has given um, the president perhaps more slack than I would have expected in, in uh, dealing with China. And I think that is actually probably contributing to worries that this will be an extended affair. Depends where you look, though, Tom. If you look at emerging market equities, we've had an almost 10% move on the MSCI yeah, Emerging we're American. Market Index. We don't look at that. We look at Apple, Amazon, and six other stocks. Well, Apple's an interesting I'm company kidding. to talk about. Take, take Apple, for instance. Apple could have some trouble yes. in China. There are things that you can model, tariffs. There are other well, things that, you can't, okay. and that's patriotism, Is that an opportunity here? I mean, do you look at Tim Cook and company and say, doom and gloom? They're gonna, what is it, John? They're not going to sell phones in China? I mean, it's that simple. But, Tom, that's the point. How, yeah. do, you, how do you model the prospect of pushback against American product in China? You can't model for that, can you, Chris? It's very difficult. Obviously, it's multifaceted with regard to, to Apple because yeah. they're the seller into China. They are they get uh, their supply from China, and there are a lot of just other things, uh, other ways yeah. that the Chinese could fight back. So. The market drawdown on Apple is 15-ish percent. It's been a decent move, That's Tom. like on the edge of bear market. It has been I a decent move. Yeah. The other issue we've got to talk about is the banks. Mm. Um, Chris, most people consider that to be an area of value that has got to deliver. We have so much pessimism baked into the financials here in the United States. You actually disagree with that. As a value investor, you don't like financials. That's quite interesting. Walk me through it. Yeah, his- historically, we've, we have not been big investors in banks, bank banks, um, because for, for a number of reasons. One, um, they tend to be commoditized, the, the borrow short, lend long business. Uh, they 
uh, in many cases are black boxes, like the big banks of the world, and and they periodically um, blow up for lots of reasons: oil, emerging markets, uh, mortgages, etc. And you know we're maybe seeing that in in Europe today. That might have been true before the financial crisis. Is it less true now in the United States? Because a lot of people will line up to tell Tom and I that they are more like utilities now. They're safer institutions. You can rely on them more. Sure, Uh, but people probably would have told you that story. You know, at many other. Uh, points in history. Clearly, the banks are better yeah. capitalized today than they were in 2007. His use of cash changed. I mean, there's been a lot of splash about share buybacks increased and all that. Mario is, is just vigilant about giving back the money. That's the best use of cash. How How is the use of cash, and I should say, forward into 2020? Well, it's it's not always the best use of cash. I mean, listen, we're, we're hiring management teams to put capital to work at rates above cost of capital, it, 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 attractive returns on equity. And ideally, we'd, we'd love management teams to find more of those opportunities. If they can't, then they probably should give the money back if, uh, in the form of buybacks, if well, the stocks represent a bargain. But the money question here is, is what you observe at Gabelli, is it financial engineering that we're seeing this money thrown back to shareholders, or is there real intelligence to it? No, there's, there's real intelligence. If your stock is cheap, um, you can increase the earnings and the, the value available for all remaining shareholders by, by buying back your stock. And those, by the way, mm-hmm. those, that money just doesn't go into a pit. Right. It gets redeployed in the economy and in companies with better growth opportunities. Tell me about sleepy food stocks right now. I mean, the Kraft Heinz was a disaster. The bad will there has been ugly. But is there an opportunity yeah, well, I think, I think things growing 2 3% a year? I, th- I think the, the counterpoint to Kraft Heinz is to look at the company that it separated from, which is Mondelez, which has been a terrific stock. They've got a, a very good portfolio. Oreo cookies, amongst other things. Snacking has is, is been very much on trend. Oh, really? And they have um, a very good management that has, um, that has managed the company well. Can I, you tell the person in the room that's like carbohydrate-free, cut and chiseled, Why are you looking and the at me? one that isn't? No, I think he was looking at me, actually. Was it? <laughs> are you cutting back on carbs as well? You can get Oreos in all different flavors, and they actually just came out with a poll that they are among the, the top 10 most favorite brands by Gen Z. Okay, the, but the but, favorite of our housing but, secretary too. Oh yes, we've heard that I heard about that in the this last week, number yeah. of days. But but, <laughs> but, but seriously, how trouble. do our <laughs> listeners discern to go with Mondelez or with Kraft a year and a half ago? Yeah, well, listen, you, that's why you have industry experts who are following what's going on with, with the industry, what the trends are. For example, another uh, trend in food might surprise you is frozen food is back, and frozen food is much different than what you and I remember as the. Uh, TV dinners. This is very. These are tasty food, packaged well, very convenient. Wait, wait you're telling me Swanson mystery meat isn't a tasty dinner? I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, you're probably not going to find that. Do you in, know I'm the, the only aisle. person east of the Mississippi River who went to college and the food got better? You're trashing your mom. <laughs> My mom. This all we the lived, time. We lived. I've John no, Farrell, this conversation John, going? do you understand what a TV dinner is? I do. We've talked about it before multiple times. Did you have them program. in the United Kingdom? I never had it. I had an Italian well, father, don't which cook. meant I ate really, so really. Millennials they, don't cook. They buy frozen food and they heat it up very conveniently, and it tastes good. And then you make money off this. What's the EBITDA? So, what's the EBITDA margin so on of, frozen food? One of the leaders in the in that industry in that sector is Conagra Foods, which was a, very much a sleepy food company. Uh, until uh, new management came along and reinvigorated um, what they're doing. So like a lot of industries, whether it's media, which is kind of my bailiwick, or others, um, changes, secular yeah. changes, change behavior, driving innovation. Is the movie business dead? The movie business is alive and well. It's an $11 billion box office in the United States. China is going to surpass that in the next couple of years. Uh, and um, 
you know, some, the, the way you view movies mm-hmm. may be different. You may be sitting on your couch watching them on Netflix or another service. But the, def- but the movie business is still in demand. Okay. Have you finished talking about your long weekend? The movies, <laughs> the frozen food. What's going on this yeah, I don't, morning? I don't know how you can say that. When, when Adventures did a billion eight globally. Do you know that we had a global reach yesterday with you flying back from the Algarve? I'm going to say thanks to Chris. Chris Morangi, thank you very Chris much. Chris Morangi, thank Your you so funds, much. Coaching, Great really you. Thank you. Sonia Meskin with a Standard Charter, their wonderful expertise within the international and emerging market as well. Sonia, let me start with a uh, Standard Charter question. Is Jerome Powell central banker to the Standard Charter world? Is he central banker to EM? Um, Well, this is an uh, excellent question. I think, you know, the Fed definitely has a domestic mandate, but it's very clear that this particular Fed is quite attuned to what's going on abroad as well. So they've cited global growth concerns um, and they've been quite attuned to them, um, especially in recent months. Um, And I think that in in that sense, the Fed understands that there is strong interconnectedness between the U.S. economy and the global economy. Last year, what we saw, Sonia, through 2018 was EM start to crack in spring. Europe soon follows. We had problems globally ex-US through the whole of the year, yet the Federal Reserve didn't really respond until the market started to crater in the back half of 2018. Has anything changed for the Fed? I think, you know, it's it's a difficult mandate in the sense that the U.S. is obviously quite insulated from some of the global economic gyrations, not fully insulated, of course, but we are largely service-oriented economy. Our good sector, I think, was uh, reacted um, quite a bit faster um, to some of the slowdown in growth that we saw globally. Um, but I think for the Fed, um, just as we mentioned earlier, right before we came on uh, online here, um, the job market is very, very strong. And that's obviously part of their mandate. And they were uh, almost exceeding, I think, um, their mandate in terms of what's going on in the labor market. And they were quite close yeah. to the inflation, inflation mandate as well. So I think it made sense for them to be a bit hawkish last year. Sonia, you spent seven years at the Fed, uh, you know, in the nitty gritty, the nitte gritte, we call that, uh, of the Fed. When we say they're data dependent, what does that actually mean to the machinery of the Federal Reserve System? I think it means that they want to be as agile as possible because just like the, just like the markets, just like investors, yeah. the Fed doesn't have a crystal ball. They're trying to make their best decisions with the information that they've got, and the data is the best information they can go by. I think that's what it means in a nutshell. Well, the best information that's out there, one of our themes, and this is uh, good, Sonia, that you were at the London School of Economics, is I've been touting a Hayek paper out of LSE from Professor Bronk, Richard Bronk, from a number of years ago. Do you know the data out there? Do you know the market pricing out there? Do you have confidence in what markets tell you right now, given all the negative interest rate paper and given maybe the mystery of China GDP? Do you, do you have a confidence in the data that's being handed to you? I do. I do. I think that in the, in the aggregate, especially in the national level, the Chinese data, um, I have confidence in as well. And, of course, the U.S. data, I think they really um, – they have some very robust processes in collecting. If nothing is perfect, no process is perfect. Um, but I think this is definitely um, uh, an area where, while we can have some improvement, I also have uh, good confidence in the trends that we're seeing. Sonia, thank you so much. Sonia Meskin with a standard Thanks, charter Sonia. Uh, today. Thank you so much. 
Paul Sweeney and I enjoy speaking to Gene Munster. He is a legend in technology at his Loop Ventures. He's taken a more thoughtful uh, approach to the product mix of companies, and we will do Tesla and then Apple here. Gene, you made worldwide headlines today with a precautionary uh, measure approach to Tesla. Define precautionary. Well, uh, Tom, 25% of Tesla's business is in China. And undoubtedly, that's going to be impacted by some of these tariffs. And so what we've done specifically is taken our estimates down for China business from 70,000 units this year to 40,000. So that was a big clip. And the reason is that these tariffs are likely going to have an impact on their business. One is that I think there's a high probability that the China actually puts import tariffs. And second is the Chinese consumer will likely uh, boycott Tesla products because of uh, they represent U.S. brands. These trade tensions should have an impact on their business. So, Gene, one of the things that's really changed in the uh, narrative of the Tesla story, we note that the stock is down about 50% from its high, the bonds are blowing out, is a concern about demand, ultimate demand. There's always been issues of, hey, can they actually manufacture cars at scale? But one of the questions now that seems to be seeping into some of the work uh, from Wall Street analysts is, What's the overall demand for electric vehicles and for Tesla? What is your sense on that front? Uh, it's twofold, Paul. First is that the near term, it really is somewhat of a wild card, in part because of this very unique aspect of Tesla's uh, demand curve more recently over the last three quarters. There essentially was two years of pent-up demand in anticipation of Model 3. So the unit numbers that we saw in the September, December, and March quarter for Model 3 were impacted by essentially consumers waiting for a long time. So as we start to exit this pent-up demand period, it gets to your point is what is the underlying demand for Tesla vehicles? And I think in the near term, that is a wild card. The company has continues to reiterate its guidance of 360 to 400,000 units, which would be up about uh, almost 200% year over year. But analysts now think that that number is going to be 300,000 or below. And so the most simple way to put it is in the near term, demand is essentially unknown. And that's why the stock continues to reel along with these uh, China tariff tensions. Separately, I think there's the demand question around the long-term EV demand. And this is something that we would uh, call an undeniable truth, is that cars should be electrified. Gas engines are, uh, are, are backwards in, in many ways, not worth getting into here. But what's noteworthy is that 1% to 2% of cars sold, of the call it 90 million cars sold globally, are electrified uh, today. And that eventually is going to be 100%. And so the calculus around the Tesla story is more or less, can the company survive until we yeah. get the sweet spot of the curve? What's the unit elasticity to the cash burn? I mean, that's what this comes down to. They got X billions of dollars laying around. You can always go raise an X marginal billion through Loop Ventures. I get that. But what's the elasticity to your markdown on unit sales? So what it comes down to, that's the exact question. Is that Are you okay? Okay, raised, good. Yeah, uh, yeah $2.7 billion. So they've got, call it $5 billion in the bank. They can run it 300, uh, they need to sell 300,000 vehicles for the, in each of the next two years. Uh, if they sell 300,000 vehicles for each of the next two years, they'll essentially be down to $2 billion in cash, which means that's, their, that's the lowest cash yeah. because they're operating. So uh, really, the, to answer your question, Tom, 
it's they need to hit that 300,000 per year. And that's essentially where analysts are at for this year. Down negative 291, the VIX 16.78 yields again in exactly three basis points in the 10-year, 2.35%. Gene Munster with us with Loop Ventures as he moves global headlines today on Tesla. Gene, we've got to ask you about Apple. You started out talking about China and Tesla. Are you going to need to mark down your iPhone unit sales? I think the street will be marking down uh, their sales. I, I don't want to say what exactly we're going to do, but I think that the street will. And let me put some context around that. This is different than the Tesla China tariff uh, impact, but just quickly to go through it. Is that 15% of China's business is in, uh, call it the mainland China. And effectively what you're going to see is this, uh, there's the tariffs, direct tariffs, and we feel strongly that that will not impact uh, Apple. They will not have tariffs put on on importing iPhones in the U.S. And likewise, the Chinese won't put tariffs in their products. We recently spoke to a former U.S. trade official. And what was most surprising about this conversation is even people in the know don't know how this is going to play out. So I'd caution uh, just some measured, uh, 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 measured steps as you think about the tariffs. But we don't think that will have an impact. But we do believe, as I think most of the street, that there is going to be some backlash, boycotting of the iPhone, in uh, part because of the, the tariffs and separately what's gone on with Huawei and likely with this hike vision. Uh, this is an unprecedented chess match that's going on that will probably have a near-term impact on Chinese iPhone units. So, Gene, in the interim, is this story need to be supported, the Apple story, by the services side of the story, given that we have so much uncertainty about iPhone shipments? Yes, services continues to be an important part, and, and you're exactly right, Paul. That needs to be uh, probably step up in the near term. I think what what uh, what will effectively the, the way this will play out is that over the next few quarters, you're going to see uncertainty and some hand wringing from investors about what the China iPhone number is going to be. But I think as we progress, there is a mat, and that will the services will be an important part to kind of offset that negative piece. But I think longer term, uh, if you think about the next three to five years, Apple is probably the best play on 5G, not only because you're going to see an uptick in iPhone sales that is not anticipated by the street, but also there's new services that can be built like around augmented reality that impacted by uh, 5G. And so I, I see this uh, ultimately as a near-term impact, call it yeah. six-month impact. Gene, we've got to leave it there. Gene Monster, thank you so much. Loop Ventures, greatly, greatly appreciate it. This is the interview of the day, the interview of May, and maybe the interview of the year if you have a pulse about China and its adjacency. We are China-US. We are Beijing-Washington. Donald Gimbel, who you have seen sipping tea at the Fullerton Hotel in Singapore, or at the Mandarin up there in the M Bar in Hong Kong, or in various important abodes in Tasmania, <laughs> and in Tom. Sydney, has for years been covering Southeast Asia. Don, you are, uh, with CIBC, you are just a foundational knowledge base of China and its adjacency of the South China Sea. How are they doing, given all the back and forth uh, between Beijing and Washington? 
It's the question of the year, maybe of the decade. Maybe of the decade, but yeah. continue. Um, I, w- I was in Beijing a couple of months ago uh, visiting with people in government and with uh, uh, companies in which we invest, and things in China are strained because, because of this trade embargo and uh, there's concern, but the economy is pretty strong. Growth this year is, is slowing, everybody knows that, but it's slowing to 6%. It's not a negative growth. Are, if the tigers are less tigery, do the corporations you are expert in, do they adapt and adjust like US multinationals? How do they adapt to the new Asian realities? Uh, everybody's feeling the pain but everybody's optimistic. So the Chinese in the last couple of decades have gone from sort of the communist socialist theory of how you run a business to being much more capitalistic. So they are, in fact, pulling in their horns. They are having problems with with what do you do with all these workers that we have, that we used to say the reason we have companies is because we employ people. Mm-hmm. They're now trying to make money because they have foreign shareholders and they are interested in making money. So the, the, the Chinese mentality has changed dramatically. And you can see it with the state operating companies specifically, where, where the quality of what they're doing is improving and they're having the same problems that we have when we, when we have a slowdown and we have excess capacity and we have a, a, excess uh, workers. And uh, so there is concern that this slowdown, which uh, is, is affecting them much more than it's affecting the United States. Um, this is something everybody's looking at, but they're saying, you know, we're having a slowdown this year, but looking out to next year, even with the even with the embargoes, even with trade restrictions with the mm-hmm. United States, there's plenty of room for us to continue to expand domestically as well as in many other parts. That's what the Belt and Road is all about: is building up alternatives to the United States. So, Don, as we think about these negotiations here, what do you think the Chinese would like to achieve here? Another <laughs> great <laughs> question. Um, the Chinese are in favor of China. The United States, if you listen to the president, is in favor of the United States. So for us to think that they're going to say, well, whatever the U- U.S. wants, we're going to do. Uh, yeah, we're bigger than they are, but they're a growing dynamic economy. So the, the Chinese want access and they want technology. They are, in my opinion, pretty much where uh, Japan was in about 1965 and uh, you know after the war after the Second World War um, uh, Japan was making little American flags and yep. junk and uh, as time went by uh, the, pro- the products became better they began to innovate they began to to surpass what they were copying, and that's where China is today. And they they want technology. I mean, the biggest problem we have is the is the theft of intellectual property, because that's how they're getting that technology. And so they're going to have to figure out how to get it without stealing it. 
and uh, uh, the the uh, the Chinese, uh, sorry, the Japanese did that, and I think the Chinese will. Okay, too. Well, can you go along Singapore here? I mean, just as a basic, you look at all the EMs. I'm just picking on Singapore here, but to the Don Gimbel expertise, do you go long Tasmania? Do you go long <laughs> Australia? Do you go long Singapore? I mean, what's the choice no, here? Well, say, Where's the you opportunity? Know, yesterday, I was at an all-day seminar here in town. And survived. Given, and survived. It was a very long day, i got to tell you. But it was sponsored by the Development Bank of Singapore. They do it here in New York every year. And uh, I, I met with seven reasonably good strong companies, Singaporean companies, as well as the Singapore Stock Exchange representative here. And uh, I would say Singapore, which has been under pressure for the last few years, is bottoming out. And yeah, I think if you're okay. patient, yeah, you can if go along Singapore. Fine. How do you adjust for currency? I mean, you're an equity guy, you're buying companies. Yeah. And that, you know, we're all fixated on seven yuan right now. My eyes are failing me. 6.92. Uh, the Dow, by the way, negative 384. And the VIX, 17.26. Don Gimbel with the CIBC. How do you, do you just have a confidence that, that currency markets will compensate for all well, this yeah. gyration? Tom, you and I have been in this business a long time. I, Unlike Sweeney. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've, I've watched markets for just about 50 years now. And I got to tell you, you got to be patient. You got to look for quality. You got to look at currencies and you got to say, you know, they go up and they go down. But what you want are companies with great management and in, com in uh, countries that have stable governments. And Singapore certainly qualifies on, in all respect. And there's some terrific companies in Singapore, as there are in Australia, as there are in Indonesia, if you look hard, uh, <laughs> as, as there are in the, in the People's Republic. And, you know, it's just a matter of breathe. Just calm down, folks. The market's weak today. It'll be strong in another few days. I mean, it, it's just uh, markets are not overpriced. The United States is a very attractive place to invest. Southeast Asia is a very attractive place. And their stocks, the good companies, are selling at very reasonable multiples. So if you're a patient investor, you can find good quality stocks at reasonable valuations with some dividends and dividend growth. These, this is where you want to be. You don't want to be in the, in in ten-year treasuries at, at two and a half percent. I mean, right. you know, it's craziness. So, are um, are corporations? Do you think people are stepping back their investment in some of Southeast Asia, maybe not just China, because? of these trade concerns? Are you sensing that corporations, maybe corporate America or corporate Europe are just maybe stepping back a little bit? I, I think they a lot of people have put it on hold. Okay. Uh, they need to do it, but they're on hold right the second. Don Gimbel, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Never, can we, we'd like to talk to you. Can you call us Barside at Fullerton's? Are you having a green tea sometime in Singapore? That would there be great. There you go. you. Don Gimbel with CIBC uh, with, with really a wonderful perspective on Asia. He's been with us for years, and I can't think of a, a more, not, not exciting, but interesting time for Southeast uh, Asia, South China Sea. We didn't even get to the Philippines where Duterte did better than good the other day. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.